So we come to chapter 28, and we get reminders of the offerings. It's like, well, are we back in the book of Leviticus? Kind of. So let's pick it up in verse 1. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the entire chapter, and we'll see it's progressive. It goes from daily to weekly, the Sabbath, to monthly, to the once-a-year Passover and the once-a-year Feast of Weeks. So it's a reminder of like daily, once a week, the Sabbath, then once a month, the special, a couple of the special holidays. So that's what we're going to go through. And as we go through it, I want you to do what I do. I want you to see if there's any words as I'm reading them that you go, ah, oh, that's an interesting word. Because we've read this material before, but every time you go through the word of God, you see things like, oh, look at that word. Now I'm going to tell you what words jumped out to me and the application we'll get from it. Verse 1 of chapter 28. Now the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the children of Israel and say to them, my offering, my food for my offering made by fire is a sweet aroma to me. You shall be careful to offer to me at their appointed time. And you shall say to them, this is the offering made by fire, which you shall offer to the Lord. Two male lambs in their first year, without blemish, day by day, as a regular burnt offering. The one lamb you shall offer in the morning, the other you shall offer in the evening. And one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering, mixed with one-fourth of a hin of pressed oil. It is a regular burnt offering, which was ordained at Mount Sinai for a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. And its drink offering you shall be one-fourth of a hen for each lamb, In a holy place, you shall pour out the drink to the Lord as an offering. The other lamb you shall offer in the evening, as the morning grain offering, as drink offering, you shall offer it as an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And on the Sabbath, verse 9, Sabbath day, two lambs in their first year without blemish and two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with oil with its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering with its drink offering. Verse 11, at the beginning of your months, you shall present a burnt offering to the Lord, two young bulls, one ram, seven lambs in their first year without blemish, three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with oil for each bull, two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour as a grain offering mixed with oil for one ram, one-tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil as a grain offering for each lamb, as a burnt offering of a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Their drink offering shall be half a hint of wine for a bull and one-third of a hint for a ram, one-fourth of a hen for a lamb. This is the burnt offering for each month throughout the months of the year. Also, one kid of a goat as a sin offering to the Lord should be offered besides the regular burnt offering and its drink offering. So, of course, that's a special monthly, begin the month with these special offerings. Now we get to Passover, verse 16. On the 14th day of the first month is the Passover of the Lord. And on the 15th day of this month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread, shall be eaten for seven days. On the first day, you shall have a holy convocation, you shall do customary work, you, and, you shall, and you shall present an offering made by fire as a burnt offering to the Lord. Two young bulls, one ram, seven lambs in the first year. Be sure they are without blemish. Their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil. Three-tenths of an ephah you shall offer for a bull and two-tenths for a ram. You shall offer one-tenth of an ephah for each of the seven lambs. Also one goat as a sin offering to make atonement for you. And you shall offer these besides the burnt offering of the morning, which is the regular burnt offering. In this manner, you shall offer the food of the offering made by fire daily for seven days as a sweet aroma to the Lord. It shall be offered besides the regular burnt offering, its drink offering. And on the seventh day, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work. Also, on the day of first fruits, when you bring a new grain offering to the Lord at your feast of weeks, you shall have a holy convocation. 
You shall do no customary work. You shall present a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord. Two young bulls, one ram, one lambs in their first year, and with their grain offering of fine flour mixed with oil. Three tenths of an ephah for each bull, two tenths for the one ram, and one tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also one kid of the goats to make atonement for you. Be sure they are without blemish. You shall present them with their drink offerings besides the regular burnt offerings with the grain offerings. So we get these two feasts on the back end preceded by the monthly offering, the Sabbath, and the daily offering. Again, we cover these things in great detail in the book of Leviticus. But here they're reaffirmed to us. And as we always remind ourselves when we're looking at the offerings, they're always pointing to Jesus. Because everything in the Old Testament with an offering, where there's blood and atonement, it's always pointing to Jesus. It's a shadow of things to come, but Christ is the fullness. And we're told by Hebrews where the the New Testament helps interpret these things, that by the blood of bulls and goats, there can be no atonement for sin or removal of sin, but it is through the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, by whom is the perfect sacrifice. So they had to find the animals without blemish. There couldn't be an obvious defect in the animal. We'd say no lame offerings to the Lord, no obvious defect. But the animal, of course, is not equal to a human being in its purpose of creation, its cognitive things, and its eternal destinies. But the animal would die in the place, and it had to be without blemish. But we know that Jesus is the Lamb of God without blemish, like John the Baptist said, like the New Testament affirms, and we're not redeemed with gold and silver, but by the precious blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, First Peter tells us. So we know contextually, biblically, that these animal sacrifices every day, twice a day of the Lamb, sunrise, sunset, once a week, this way on the Sabbath, there you go. Then the new month this way, and then the feast this way. It's like a day planner with the Lord where every day, because I, I use a day planner. I have a day planner. I'm a day planner person. And a lot of times where I go to bed at night, okay, six to nine is devotion time, free time, hydrate, stretch, make sure I'm, you know, maybe walk the dogs. Nine to noon is the, the creative element of the day, the first part of the day where it's like, you're sharp, you're alert, it's creative. It's where you, your mind is very stimulated usually to go after creative thinking and stuff like that. I try and do phone calls or meetings more in the afternoon where it's better for me to be with people as opposed to trying to be creative because I tend to be nap-oriented as opposed to creative in the afternoon. But if I'm talking with people and engage, I'm, I'm very much responsive that way. And then the evening, like 5 o'clock, it's, it's time with my wife and the things that we do. And I'll set the day, and you know, it's morning devotion this way. I try and seek the Lord at some point in the middle of the day, pause and, and slow things down. I try and think about what I read that morning later on in the day so it doesn't just go in and out, which is easy to do, of course, for all of us. And you know, try and end the day focusing on the Lord and what the next day looks like and did we get the main things done that we felt God called us to do and what didn't we get done and what's a sense of direction for tomorrow. So for me, with a day planner... I have a sense of direction for the day. I have a general sense of direction for what I want to accomplish during the week. And I have the month as well. I have to get a day planner that shows a month. So I've got to have the week by the days. And I've got to have the month because I go by the day in the month. And I write down Jack's doing worship, that Jack would be doing worship this Tuesday. He'll be doing worship this Saturday. And I write it in. And there's highlights. And there's there's blue. There's pink. And there's orange highlighters, yellow highlight for different codes, you know, Orange is always WG, accuse me, it's a church thing, something special, guest speaking's pink, stuff like that. But in all of it, every day, from sunrise to sunset, every week, every month, every year, it's about the Lord. 
It's about Jesus. He's the author and finisher of my faith, your faith, our faith. And I want to acknowledge the Lord in the beginning of every day. That's why we have morning devotion, right? We seek the Lord in the morning like David said and like Jesus did. And that's why we want to seek the Lord throughout the day like Daniel did three times a day, as was his custom from the youth. And that's why we want to be like David and meditate upon the scriptures at night when we're in our bed in the middle of the night. That's what we want to do. That's what this speaks of. I mean, of course, it speaks of Jesus and it reminds them, it was reminding them in a shadow, these people of covenant, like a black and white version on TV to who we, and what we see now with all that we have, it's a foreshadow. But it was a reminder in the morning, in the evening, on the weekend, start of the week, the month, the special holidays, they were all there to remind the people that Jesus is Lord and he's over everything. And that God, everything we have is from the Lord, and it's all about the Lord. So whatever we do, when we get to Deuteronomy, we're going to be told, hey, look, when you wake up in the morning, say to your kids, hey, this is what we're going to do with the Lord. You go out in the field, the Lord's in the field. The Lord's in the mountains. The Lord's in the birds flying by. The Lord's in the sky. The Lord's in the river. Like we were singing Psalm 23 with Jack just a moment ago, the John Foreman song. And he's in all that. And the scriptures will be on your doorpost. And they'll be on your doorpost when you come home. And it's not just a religious thing that they're on your doorpost, but it's a spirit thing because as you're going about the day with your children and your life, you're living that life with Christ, the abundant life. That's what we're going to get in Deuteronomy chapter 6, from generation to generation. That's what this is. One generation shall proclaim your praises to another. And... Uh, a righteous man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. And we talked about this Saturday. The greatest inheritance is the faith that we give to our children and our grandchildren. And then we go. Maybe you see great-grandchildren. That's possible. But you're fading when you see great-grandchildren. And you're going. And we know that. So that's what I see here. Now, let's look at some key words that get our attention. It's basically God over everything. And obviously, we're here Tuesday night in the gym. So I think God is over everything for most of us in this place tonight. But a couple things that get my attention in this chapter. Command the children of Israel. But that word command, we don't see that a lot in the New Testament. And I think we like suggestions, input, ideas, principles, philosophies of ministry, principles of a godly life, seven you know, things that are essential to your life. We don't like commands. And I think what's really hurt the body of Christ in our generation, baby boomers specifically, we don't like commands. We don't like being told this is absolute. So now we see ourselves in 2021 where so many things that where God's word is so clear. This is a command. This is not an option. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. Because all scripture is profitable. So whatever we think was fulfilled in the New Testament from the Old Testament, the principles of the Old Testament are still in play. And commands are commands. The greatest sermon in the world is Jesus expounding on the Ten Commandments in the Sermon on the Mount. They're not suggestions, they're commands. And what has hurt the church in our salt having flavor and our witness being bright is so often we look at God's word as suggestions and principles instead of commands. But a command is a command, and it's to our own best interest. We don't raise children with suggestions, and hopefully you don't. There are absolute truths. There are absolute rights and wrongs. There are absolute right choices and wrong choices. And it's absolute the right thing to do. 
generally pretty common sense in most situations. But now we're in this society where everything is so ambiguous and existential, if you will, or whatever you think is good. And, and we've lost a total compass of the Lord for a lot of people in the church and the absolute authority of Christ over all things because we don't like the word command. So I'm just going to tell you right now tonight in this text, circle that word command for commandments because God is absolute in what is right and wrong and he does not change. And what he's doing in our life is absolute. His call in our life is absolute. It's not suggestions or seven essential principles or intended purposes with the Lord. It's commands. And the commands that produce godliness in our life by yielding to the work of the Holy Spirit while looking to Jesus to other of our faith, those are commands. And so we may not know exactly God's will for our life, but we can know his will from his word and their commands. And to the degree that we obey his commandments, we're blessed. To the degree that we don't, we bring problems upon ourselves. So that word, command my people, command. These are not suggestions. Then there's another word that gets my attention too, right after that. Be careful. Be careful. Like that's that's kind of jumps out at you right here in this chapter because we're getting a reminder of basic things. It's a... It's an orientation for the next generation. It's a command. And then he says, be careful. Be careful to offer me at their appointed time. Be careful to play by the rules. Be careful to follow the instruction manual. Be careful to do what I've called you to do, when I've called you to do it, how I've called you to do it. And the rest of the chapter is when and how? When, who, how? Which animals? Which offerings? The hint of wine, the hint of oil, the, the drink offerings, the, the, the bulls. The sh- it's be careful to follow it. So again, tonight, as we're in the first month of the year, I look at these first couple of verses and say, wow, I need to remember that God's word is not suggestions for my life. They are commands that bring Blessings to me, to those around me, and joy to the Lord. Because when Job was tested in the book of Job, and Satan was accusing humanity before God, God said, have you considered my servant Job a righteous man? And Job was a righteous man because he feared God and obeyed his commandments. And though in the dialogue from the book of Job, of trying to understand from his own soul what he's going through, and the wrong perspectives of his friends who are supposed to be helping him, God still very much vindicates Job in that book. And it's Job who intercedes for his friends for their bad counsel. And it's Job who has more blessings in the end than what he lost in the beginning because he's a just and upright man. He obeyed God and feared the Lord. In fact, it's Job who said, as well as Solomon, because we know Solomon says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? We all know that's Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Do you know Job says the same thing a thousand years before Solomon? Because Job's the same time as Abraham, about 2000 BC, and he says, This is wisdom to fear the Lord. Obey his commands, to do what's right, and to be careful to do things the right way with the Lord. I spoke to someone not long ago who was visiting a church, and they said it was great worship and all these things. And not in a critical spirit, but they simply said, when they're speaking about the word of God, it was very, it was very reckless. It was uh, kind of flippant. 
kind of like uh, loose, loose wheels, loose trucks on your skateboard. It was just kind of loose. Like, it, it wasn't clean and tight. It was just kind of like cool, groovy, broad word of God. This is not cool, groovy, broad word of God. Be careful. It, for me, as a pastor, I think of where it says to, that a, a workman needs to study to show himself approved, rightly dividing the word of truth, that they wouldn't be ashamed. And, of course, James tells us, let it all be teachers, for we'll receive a stricter judgment. So I'm not moved by terror for the day of the Lord, but I am moved with reverence that I'm, I'm going to give an account. And commandments are commandments. And we don't want to confuse that with suggestions. You, your neighbors might give you suggestions what to do with your yard or how to remodel your kitchen. Okay? Commandments are commandments. And to be careful to do things the way God says to is to be wise. There's a blessing in that. And then also, it says later on, so be careful. Then look at verse 19. It says, be sure they are without blemish. So we have commandments. We have be careful and be sure. Be sure. So not only be careful, but be sure. Like, you know, when your parents say, like, are you sure? Are you sure about this? Are you sure this is where you want to go? Are you sure you want to take this job? Are you sure you want to ask this person to marry you? Are you sure you want to move out of state? Are you sure you want to stay in state? Are you sure? See, that's something parents say, like, are you, so you're sure about that? And even in sports, are you sure? Like when I coach really good elite athletes at the highest level in surfing, I would say to them, like, so this is what we're thinking. And, well, this is what I'm thinking, they would say. I'd say, okay, well, are you, are you sure about that? Do you feel like, are you sure? Yeah, I'm sure. Well, you're going to make the decisions in the water without a coach for the next 25 minutes. So as long as you're sure about that, then okay. So we need, we need to be sure. And God's saying, be sure. And again, with all the ambiguity going on all around us of redefinition of right and wrong and wrong becomes right and right becomes wrong and things that are exalted and things that are canceled, let's just let the Holy Spirit say of his word, be sure, be sure that you're listening to the right voices. Be sure that your plumb line is the right plumb line. Be sure that your standards are God's standards because there's no shadow of turning with him, the Father of light. So these are commandments. Be careful and be sure. Amen? I think it's very appropriate as I look around us and see our society. Chapter 29, we read on. Now we'll read the whole chapter. In the seventh month, on the first day of the month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work, for it is a day of blowing the trumpets. You shall offer a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord, one young bull. You shall offer a burnt offering as a sweet aroma to the Lord, one young bull, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year without blemish. Their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for the ram, one-tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also one kid of the goats as a sin offering to make atonement for you, besides the burnt offering with its grain offering for the new moon, the regular burnt offering with its grain offering, and their drink offering according to the ordinances as a sweet aroma, an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the tenth day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall afflict your souls. You shall not do any work. You shall present a burnt offering to the Lord as a sweet aroma, one young bull, one ram, and seven lambs in their first year. Be sure. There's that same phrase again. And there's three be sures tonight, and they're all be sure that your offering is without blemish. Be sure they are without blemish. Verse 9. 
Their grain offering shall be a fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for the bull, two-tenths for one ram, one-tenth for each of the seven lambs, also one kid of the goats as a sin offering, besides a sin offering for atonement, the regular burnt offering with its grain offering and their drink offerings. Verse 12. On the 15th day of the seventh month, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work, and you shall keep a feast of the Lord seven days. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire, sweet aroma, to the Lord. Thirteen young bulls, two rams, fourteen lambs in their first year, they shall be without blemish. Their grain offering shall be of fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each of the thirteen bulls, two-tenths for each of the two rams, and one-tenth for each of the fourteen lambs. Also one kid of the goats as a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. On the second day, present twelve young bulls. So the bull counts coming down by the day. Two rams, 14 lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offerings and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, for the lambs, and for their numbers according to their ordinance. Also one kid of the goats as a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering for its grain offering and their drink offerings. On the third day, present 11 bulls, two rams, 14 lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offering and their drink offering for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs by their number according to the ordinances. Also one goat as a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering and its drink offering. On the fourth day, present ten bulls, two rams, fourteen lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offerings or drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, for the lambs, for their numbers, according to the ordinance. Also one kid of the goats is a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. On the fifth day, present nine bulls, two rams, fourteen lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offerings and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs, and by their numbers according to the ordinances. Also one goat as a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. So obviously we can see here that the bulls are changing, but the other numbers are staying the same. And God's giving repetition, and he's doing it for a reason, because he's the Lord, and we need to hear the same thing many times over and over. Verse 29. On the sixth day, present eight bulls, two rams, and fourteen lambs in their First year without a blemish, and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs, and by their numbers, according to the ordinance. Also one goat as a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. On the seventh day, present seven bulls, two rams, and fourteen lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offering and their drink offerings for the bulls, for the rams, and for the lambs, by their numbers, according to the ordinances. Also one goat as a sin offering, besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering and drink offering. On the eighth day, you shall have a sacred assembly. You shall do no customary work. You shall present a burnt offering, an offering made by fire as a sweet aroma to the Lord, one bull, one ram, seven lambs in their first year without blemish, and their grain offerings and their drink offerings for the bull, for the ram, for the lambs, and for their number, according to the ordinance. Also one good is a sin offering besides the regular burnt offering, its grain offering, and its drink offering. These you shall present to the Lord at your appointed feast, besides your vowed offerings and your freewill offerings as your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, as your drink offerings and your peace offerings. So Moses told the children of Israel everything just as the Lord commanded Moses. So this is really part two. Chapter 29 really goes to chapter 28 because it's the offerings and it's the feast and the details. And again, the repetition just makes it so clear. Like, well, what do we do on the fifth day? Well, you do the same thing you did on the fourth day, except you have nine bulls. Well, what, what, what did we do? What did we do on that day? I forgot. Okay, let's start from the top. We changed the bull total. The lambs stayed the same. The goats, like, can you, like, there's no, there's nowhere to get lost in here. You follow me? You can say something like, look, day five is the same as day four. Just change your bulls. One less bull. We had this many bulls. Now we have this many bulls, right? 
I forgot. Okay, so here it is. Here's the, here's the law. Here's the scroll. Read it out loud. Okay, the goats, the, the, the hen. All right. That's, it is um, airtight to avoid any confusion. Every day has clear definition. You notice in these two chapters, it's very clear what to do morning and night every day in Israel. It's very clear what to do on the Sabbath, every Sabbath that's distinct and different from every day in Israel. Then we're told what to do every first day of the month, which is different than the Sabbath, which is different than every day, because he says, besides that, you do this. Oh, so now what changes on the 1st of of February? Okay, let's go back to here and read this. It is all there. You can't get lost in this. The repetition is consistency of really, for lack of a better term, policies and procedures. So no one can say like, well, I didn't know that on the fifth day we're... Did you read it? I mean, you're serving the Lord in the priesthood. It's kind of like when they carry the Ark of the Covenant on the cart and it falls and they grab it and they all get struck down. It's like, I'm surprised David didn't have them carry the Ark, right? Like, they're always told to carry the Ark on their shoulders. It was never intended to be on a cart. It's all here. You, You obey it, you're blessed. You disobey it, things go wrong. And they don't turn out the way they're supposed to. So, Chapter 29 is really part two of chapter one, but, excuse me, of chapter 28. They're two chapters together. But I will say this, again, something gets my attention here. We we saw it a little bit previously, but the holy convocation, it says there in chapter 29, verse one, a holy convocation, and they're blowing trumpets on this, and it's the Feast of Trumpets. And then verse seven, a holy convocation, but here it says, you shall afflict your souls. And then verse 12, the Feast of Tabernacles, you shall have a holy convocation. And then the feasts are all wrapped up with verse 39 where it says, these you shall present to the Lord at your appointed feast. So these feasts were distinct and deliberate with the Lord. They were part of the, you can almost say the quarterly calendar of the year because there's essentially four feasts. So they're almost like not laid out evenly, but they or major feasts, and there's three that the children of Israel, the men, would all go before the Lord. And even in the book of Acts, as we mentioned, this Leviticus, studying Leviticus outside in the summer, that Paul the Apostle would sort of set his travel schedule by the Jewish holidays to be back in Jerusalem by, he's hoping to be there by Pentecost, that sort of a thing. And so they had the day-to-day, and eventually to the other extreme, or the other end, were these random feasts that were very important. And I, I bring this out to our attention because he says in this, the latter one, which is Yom Kippur and all that, that it's a holy convocation, a holy convocation, afflict your souls, a holy convocation. It's set apart. It's very special, a very special time of year set apart that's holy and consecrated to the Lord. These are very special gatherings. And again, let's go back in the context of Israel. Three times a year. The men, like all the men in this room, and we'd take our families, no doubt in most cases, we're going to Jerusalem. And you'd reverse engineer your calendar. So as you're doing work in September, you know, I'd say to Troy, hey, Troy, two weeks, we got to start walking to Jerusalem. It takes us a day and a half. We always go the long way around Samaria. Maybe we'd go through Samaria and make the shortcut, not go down by the Jordan River. But we would, we would plan and we'd say, hey, we need to be in Jerusalem by this day. And that's required of the Lord. And we're going to obey his word. So we got to... We know that we need to wrap up this business deal, this this contract, this floor work in the sanctuary. we got to wrap this up because we all got to leave and go to Jerusalem. 
See, that's, that's the context. So through, even throughout the year, there's personal elements that God had for them that you stop everything you're doing and you go to Jerusalem and you and your family and, and draw near the Lord. It's a holy convocation. So work can become monotonous. Work can become frustrating. Work can bring out the best of people and the worst of people. Work can be super frustrating. Taxes, civil, local, local regulations, regional regulations, state regulations, national regulations. Work can be, for every generation of humanity, like they always say, what? Death and taxes. There's two things for sure. So it can vary. And so I just think it's great that the Lord says, you know what? Stop it all. It'll take care of itself. It, it, it'll be there. But you need, you need to come down to Jerusalem. Come, let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. Let's go before the God of, of Jacob. Let's bring praises. Let's sing the ascension psalms. Let, let's go and let's reboot. Let's recalibrate. Let's, let's not make this an obligation. Because, you know, like, we can make things an obligation with the Lord. And we don't want to do that. They didn't want to do that. These are opportunities, not obligations. And let's draw that distinction right now. These are opportunities to press in and grow. They're not obligations. The worst thing you could do when you're up there in the tribe of Dan in the far north on the Syrian border is like, man, I can't believe it. I got to walk 120 miles, you know, in three days and start grumbling about it. And I got all these unfinished things. And we can do that, right? And and then maybe the wife's like, hey, you got to finish that remodel because you got to get going. I know, I, I, gotta, I can't believe I got to go down there. Like, who set these things in motion? Can you picture that? Like how we think? Oh, I can't believe I go down at Jerusalem. Boy, talk about bad timing for the Feast of Tabernacle. Now, if I was running the universe, I'd kick it back a week to work around my schedule so I could finish this task. Right? <laughs> Let God be true and amen a liar. You know I was going to say it because I say it every service. Right there, just, hey. So the walk, maybe on the walk, you could fix your attitude. Right? Start walking like, oh. maybe some guy's like, oh, see you later. And, and other people are just like, oh, man. And, and maybe start walking. And why am I walking? Where am I going? Why am I going there? I'm a child of covenant. Redeemed with blood. I'm going to the house of the living God. I'm going to present offerings to God. Those guys, Ben-Hadad and the Syrians, they don't go to the temple of the living God for tabernacles and the trumpet sounding. They worship their false gods of Ben-Hadad. If you're coming from the south, Judah, and you're going past the Philistine territory, you're like, no, those Philistines, man, they never get it. They're the, the temple of Dagon, right? And the Philistine gods. But I'm an Israelite. We are Israelites. Children, we are Israelites. We are people of covenant. Of all the people in the, in the universe that ever lived, God chose our father Abraham and our, you know, for, you know, the patriarch Isaac and our father Jacob and our father Judah. And we're people of covenant. And that's the holy convocation. Not religious, not a have to not an obligation, but an opportunity. That's what a holy convocation is. Now, if you think, well, what's, what's our holy convocations? I mean, I think culturally, Christmas and Easter and Good Friday are obviously very holy convocations for American Christians. Most Western Christians and even, you know, people in the not Western world Christians tend to, you know, we celebrate Easter and Christmas, and inevitably someone always sends me an email, why do we celebrate, you know, pagan holidays? I'm like, you just, I'm like, 
you sent that to 50 churches, so I'm just ignoring it. Um, but that's, to me, that's not even the point. Because the earth is the Lord's and everything that's in it. And when I celebrate Christmas, I'm not celebrating a pagan holiday. I'm celebrating Jesus Christ's birth as the Savior of the world. And when I celebrate Easter, I'm not celebrating some bunny rabbit of fertility. I'm celebrating an empty tune. And I think you're with me on that one. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled, nothing's pure. So what are you going to do? This is the world we were born into. When I was a little kid living on base, <laughs> Easter morning, the sunrise service, out there on the base marching grounds in Quantico, and Father Brazley and the Catholic Mass, and there it is, and it's sunrise service. I'm like, this is good. We get it out of the way, and we get to you know, eat all the candy the rest of the day. Nonetheless, it was a holy convocation in our family. I think these are also things in our lives where we say, hey, we're going to be home for Christmas, we're going to be home for Easter, or we're going to be home for Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving tends to be a holy convocation in our culture, in our society as well. And I've mentioned this recently, that a lot of the world celebrates Thanksgiving. They've taken an American holiday from the pre-colonial era, and they celebrate it in Chile. They, they celebrate Thanksgiving in Chile. You know that, right? They celebrate it in Russia. They th- people celebrate Thanksgiving all the world. It's like, how did that happen? Well, you don't have to be American to be thankful, right? And the idea of being thankful, however it was birthed in our nation, it's an inspiration to other people. So to me, we like to slow things down and draw near the Lord at those times and make them special times with the Lord. We say with family, and people celebrate those holidays devoid of Christ and the gospel, and they make it all about family and stuff like that, and that's what you would expect. But we make it about the family of God, just like Jacob and his kids walking down from the northern tribe of Dan for two days going like, boys, this is the way it is. Can you imagine like some guy named Jacob from the tribe of Dan, like 1000 BC, headed down to the temple and he's got teenage boys. He don't want to hike 100, 100 miles in two days. You just picture it like they're just people like us. And, and the daughter's like, I'm going too, Pop. Sure, come along. You know, come on, Hannah, let's go. Let's do this. And uh, you just, it's special. These are not obligations. These are opportunities. So as we go forward in 2021, I'm not sure what our holy convocations might be beyond that. I do believe that Franklin Graham's prayer, prayer day back in September was really special. I think it was a really special thing. I think it was an honorable thing. Obviously, it was not a political rally. He made that very clear that it was not a political rally. And it was really special for the men here in our sanctuary to gather as we prayed for our nation and prayed for our future. Doesn't it give you peace for who we are as a nation right now if, if you prayed along those lines we gave our nation to the lord and this is the nation we have and i'm okay with that i am i'm just i'm just a son of adam serving jesus and trying to so bountifully and we as a church joined with franklin graham and we saw greg Laurie and skip isaac two of the strongest leaders in the calvary movement represent our movement and pastor chuck and they prayed wonderful prayers for the future of our country and it was not a political rally it was it was Christians by tens of thousands going to the capital saying, fulfilling what it says in Chronicles, if my people are called by my name, will cry out, I will, and they will repent, I will hear, hear them and heal their land. And I don't know what God's doing right now in our country. I don't know what he's doing in the world. I'm just trying to figure out what he's doing in my own life right now. But that was a holy convocation. That was a very special time for the men. That's why I had all the men there sign our card from that day. I got everyone's signature from that day. To me, that was a holy convocation. And it helps me feel better about whatever goes on in the future, like whatever I might face for my faith, uh, persecution or attacks. I know, like, you know, 
That was a peaceful prayer walk. Greg prayed for the first responders. Some of you guys were here. Garrett prayed for stuff. We, we prayed for, I always remember, I'm going to always remember Greg's prayer for the first responders because he's a first responder. But it's a very, and Susan, your prayers were, you know, we, we were very sincere when we prayed all those things. It was a holy convocation. We had a holy convocation as a church when we, when we did those things. And I feel good about it. And it's part of our legacy. And if you drive by this building and it's no longer a church, or you drive by this building and it's not even here, just remember we did our part in our time, in our generation. Amen? I'm up for holy convocations, and they're, 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 they're not in vain. Remember after 9-11, the big prayer gatherings, National Day of Prayer with George Bush and Pastor Chuck in that full sanctuary at Costa Mesa? Man, I remember that day so well. Wow. That was a holy convocation. National Day of Prayer seemed like for a while it was a holy convocation, not so much anymore. But still, I'm open to new ideas for holy convocations because we're in the Testament of Grace. And yeah, may the Lord guide us in holy convocations. Amen? Yeah. And finally, we're going to do chapter 30, and we read this. It's a short chapter, 16 verses. It's about keeping our word. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Or if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow in the agreement by which she has bound herself, and her father holds his peace, then all of her vows shall stand, and every agreement with which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will release her because her father overruled her. So that's when she's under her father's covering. Verse 6, if indeed she takes a husband while bound by her vows or by rash utterance from her lips which she bound herself and her husband hears it and makes no response to her on the day that he hears it, then her vow shall stand and her agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, he shall make void her vow which she took and which she uttered with her lips by which she bound herself and the Lord will release her. Also, any vow of a widow or a divorced woman by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. If she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an agreement with an oath, and her husband heard it and made no response to her and did not overrule it, then all her vows shall stand, and every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband truly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatever proceeded from her lips concerning her vows or concerning the agreements binding her, it, it shall not stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will release her." Every vow and every binding oath to afflict her soul, her husband may confirm it or her husband may make it void. Now, if her husband makes no response whatever to her from day to day, then he confirms all of her vows and all over all the agreements that bind her, he confirms them because he made no response to her on the day that he heard them. But if he does make them void after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife, between a father and his daughter in her youth in her father's house. Well, the common thing in the entire chapter is our vows and keeping our words. And essentially, these seem to be vows to the Lord, but certainly we know they could be vows of uh, legal binding, if you will, as well. So before we wrap that up, I do want to point out, obviously, the, the daughter under her husband's authority, that's very, excuse me, the daughter under her father's authority, that's very important. And 
ideally you want to, you'd like to have a godly father and godly daughters, and they tr- they have a strong, a good relationship. So when they're thinking about who they're going to marry or where they're going to go to college, what they want to do, you'd like to think that there's a godly father who fears the Lord and loves the Lord and can guide their daughter, and that relationship's a healthy one and can can lead them. And fortunately for me, I had that I had and have that kind of relationship with my daughters, and it wasn't always perfect, and it was different with both Hannah and Leah. Hannah's thirty now, and Leah's twenty eight. They're both married, and Time goes on, they go different ways, but going back to when they're teenagers and like, you know, when your parents are like, Hannah, you, I don't think you should go to that party. Like, there's nothing good's going to happen from that party. Or, you know, then they go and they call you at 4 a.m., Dad, can you come get me? The, the sleepover is not that, it's not happening. And yes, those are parental things for a dad and a daughter. But I think when, when Leah wanted to get married as a teenager, you know, my daughter Leah was married at 19. And so when I agreed to let Jacob marry their high school sweethearts and that Jacob wanted to marry Leah, I, the moment I did their ceremony and the moment they were together, I just thought, it's not, it's not my place. Like, I had the talks with Jacob beforehand to, you know, his future father-in-law to a 19-year-old. And once that was done, that, that, was, that was done. And I, I love Jacob and I, I'm there for Jacob and Leah, but Leah went under my covering to under his covering. In God's economy, she was under my covering and all those Bible studies and leading her spiritually and, and making a way for her to go to Christian schools, Santa Fe Christian in Solana Beach, Calvary Christian at Vista, and then Calvary Chapel schools to graduate. That's what we did for her, and we found a way, her mother and I. And we raised her in the right way, and then she made good decisions, and she's been very fruitful. Hannah, very similar. Nate, who's, of course, a pastor, and she's a pastor's wife, she asked my counsel about moving to Florida. She said, Daddy, I think Nate, Nate should be courting me. He lives in Florida. He should come here and court me. And I said, I understand where you're coming from, but you see, you're called to be by his side in his calling. So in the end, you're, you're joining his side to be with him in his calling. So you need to move to Florida if you think you're called to, to marry Nate. And you know what she did? She moved to Florida. Without a job and a little bit of money, she got an apartment. Without a car, she rode a bike. And she got a job and built a life in Florida before Nate ever asked her to marry him. And then Nate called me and said, can I marry your daughter? And I said, yes. And they've been faithfully serving the Lord for seven years now in a wonderful way. And when Hannah married Nate there in Vero Beach, I was part of that ceremony as well. And God bless and buena suerte. You know, it's like, it's like, it's a wonderful day. It's a beautiful day. And now both Leah, Leah's under Jacob's authority in the marriage and Hannah's under Nate's authority in the marriage. But of course, Jacob and Nate are both really smart and they know that the wisdom of their wives is great wisdom. And um, I don't think they make, uh, you know, well, I won't go into their personal lives with finances and stuff, but I'm just saying like, there's some smart people in the room, male and female, when they're discussing anything and planning anything. And in my life with my wife, I can't even imagine... Um, because because it's making vows, so you're signing contracts, right? The lease to buy the house, the school, student loans, right? See, these these the, this is the context of this. Uh, you're making commitments with people, and they're binding. And so I do think there's a principle that wives be careful not to go out there and just get a bunch of credit cards and rack up all this debt, and then tell your husband to bail you out. Like we all need to be on the same page under the Lord, type of a thing. And I mean, vice versa, it went the other way too. 
if the guy does stupid things, the wives can at least take comfort that, well, God will deal with that, and that's not on me, that's on him. I may be affected by it, but God's got my back. There's just an order, and we're told in 1 Corinthians 11 that the Father's the head of Christ, Christ is the head of man, and man is the head of woman. And it's not superiority because there's neither male nor female, there's equality, but there's an order. And to be honest, like I've shared in tears recently, going through 2020, I wish there was another authority over me that I could see in time, space, and matter. I, I, I would have liked to have been a wife in 2020 and let my husband make some calls, difficult calls. And that's not a cop-out, but you understand the context of what I'm saying? Because too much is given, much is required. And leading is a huge responsibility. We just taught all this recently in Topical, but we need to be led that we can lead. And so I hope you ladies understand the spirit of what God's saying here, that he's looking out for your interests according to his order and his coverings. And just as I, as a pastor, want to be very sensitive for decisions I've made during COVID-19 and 2020, I look to Pastor Brian Broderson in Calvary Costa Mesa, by whom we came from and were sent out by. I've looked to Calvary Chapel Association and Don McClure, Jeff Johnson, Raul Reese, and the guys that run and oversee the Calvary movement in Southern California, I've looked to them and I've appreciated their covering because it's been a, it's been a challenging time, right? It's good to have authority over us that is godly authority. So in the end, though, the ultimate context here is being true to your word, right? It's being true to your word. So let your yes be yes, your no be no. Jesus taught on this in the Sermon on the Mount. The book of James says, above all else, isn't it interesting in the book of James, above all else, let your yes be yes and your no be no. So it's just a reminder to us the beauty of order in this chapter that God has, because he has an order, and we get further insight from the New Testament. But just the value of your words, the value of when you sign an electronic contract, when you sign a paper contract, when you shake hands or elbow pump or whatever, the the value of your words when you say, I'm going to do this service at this price. And whether it costs you more or not, you're like Jacob taking the loss for his father-in-law Laban. You do what you said you're going to do. It's so important to be a woman of integrity and a man of integrity when we put our name on a piece of paper or we put our name behind the commitment and the vow and the promise to do something. My son Timmy had the surfing accident last year when he didn't have any health insurance. It took him a whole year to clear that, but he did. And I commend him for it. He worked hard for a whole year working with Broderick, and a good portion of what he worked for was to clear some student debt that he signed on for, medical bills he incurred from a surfing accident without having health insurance. And I look, my, I raised my son at 26 to do the right thing, and the right thing was is paying every single medical bill that he had, and he could. And the value of a dollar when you're paying off those bills takes, the value of an hour for your dollar takes on greater, right? And even just the student loans, he's not looking for a government bailout on student loans. He signed to go to Cal State Maritime. He signed those loans with Navy Federal, and he signed those loans with the government. Now, if the government wants to release him, that's between him and the government. But he's not expecting a bailout. We didn't raise our kids to expect a bailout from anybody. Your yes is yes. Your no is no. When you make a vow, you shall do according to what proceeds out of your mouth. Amen? God's going to always honor that. No, no, you just, so what you do is when you get older, younger people, is you get wiser. Like, I'll think about it. I'll sit on it. I'll pray about it. You're a little less quick to do the elbow, and you're a little, you know, let's just, let's just, let's look at this. 
That's how you gain wisdom. And when you look at what are you going to do? Lord, is this the right decision? Are you confirming this college? Are you, you know, like they've asked me to marry him. I'm in love with him. Still though, like, are you calling me to, to commit to two years in the, the ministry field to go somewhere and do something? Those types of things. It's important. We seek the Lord, we acknowledge him, and we keep our word and we do what proceeds from our mouth. This is the law of the Lord by the spirit of the Lord for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ and who we are. And this is what makes us salt and light in a world that is very ambiguous for such a time as this. Amen.